Welcome to Politics and Psychology. I'm Dr. Renee Carr, and please introduce yourself in the chat or on social media. Today, we are talking about what 60 Days In reveals about you. And for this to not be a one-sided or a one-time conversation, then please also give your thoughts or questions in the comments section below. Now, as a psychologist, I can pretty much predict what you or the average human being will do in a situation where they are forced to survive or forced to be in an extremely harsh environment. So let's start with an example, and we're going to use a scientific rat example. In 1968, Dr. John Calhoun, who was a researcher at the National Institute of Mental Health, he conducted an experiment where he placed four rat couples, so it's one male and one female each, into a specifically designed space called Universe 28. So inside this rat universe, then he had numerous rat apartments, they had abundant nesting supplies, and they had an unlimited amount of food and water. So they were never going to run out of food, never going to run out of water. The only thing that was limited was their amount of space that they had. So with the experiment, it went from eight rats to over 250 rats at one point. And when the population of the rats had its highest peak, we saw that the rats became increasingly violent, they developed abnormal sexual behaviors, and they even began neglecting or even killing their own babies and sometimes even eating their own babies. So ultimately, obviously, the colony of these rats died out. And what this video shows us is that even when you have an abundance of your food and water supply, when you don't have ample space to move around, then it can cause a collapse of a society. And if you are interested, I do have the link to this video, or at least one of the experiments inside the YouTube description for the video. So you can definitely check that out if you want to. But what we do see from these rodent experiments is that personal space is very essential to the human mentality. So we use this through comparative psychology. When you compare what an animal does or how an animal reacts, and then you apply that to what humans may do. And you do that as a beginning or a starting point to then apply these research experiment outcomes now to a human population. So in keeping with that, let's apply that to the TV series 60 Days In, and let's look specifically at the seventh season. So in season seven, and I just want to say that I completely love the whole 60 Days In uh, show. I really, really am a great fan, and I'm really waiting for my phone call for them to have me be an expert on this show. But anyway, back to the main issue. So on season seven, they are in the Henry County Jail and Sheriff Scandrit is the sheriff for this particular episode or this season. And for the first time in the history of the show, the show actually had inmates who were on the show as cast members. So they had previous prison history. And so now they are being cast into the show to then also go back in for another 60 days. And so in this season seven, the perfect example is Carlos. So he shows exactly what the majority of humanity would do when faced with a very extremely harsh situation for a lack of resources, 
a lack of power and also harsh environmental conditions. So let's examine it closely. As the season progresses, we see Carlos drastically change. He went from in the beginning, the first episode, just saying, yeah, I'm going to be an inmate. I'm going to act like one. I know what to do to as it got closer to the end, fully embodying and becoming an inmate. And you can see him going from walking within the role that he was supposed to do for this reality show to then going off the script and completely taking on prisoner mentality, inmate behaviors. And for example, what he first did, which put the program itself in jeopardy, as well as the other inmates in the program, was he started a commissary. So a commissary is when you are in prison and you either order extra snacks or you have your meal tray and you may put some to the side and you save it. And then you save those snacks or you save those menu items and you use that to trade and barter other things, other favors, or to pay someone back for something. This can become a big problem within the prisons because sometimes people are so hungry, they may make promises to pay someone back if they give them food or give them their biscuit, but then they actually never get the money to be able to pay them back. And in order to maintain respect, the person who gave out that food must then execute some type of consequence, be it a beat down, something happening where the person is being punished for not keeping their word. Because in prison, you have to make sure that you maintain respect that you have. And if you don't, then you yourself can become a target. So what we see with Carlos is that even though he was told by Sheriff Scandriff to stop his commissary, the one reason why he continued to do it is because it helped him to not only maintain his own self-safety, but it also helped him to maintain his clout, to help him to be able to provide food and resources to other inmates who were lower on the totem pole for ranking. And he was able to then use that to kind of like control these people, the other inmates that he was using to supposedly accomplish the mission of the program. And so the whole goal of the program is to have prisoners go inside of a jail to be undercover spies and to feed back to the sheriff any conditions, whether it's the inmates or the guards, anything that needs to be addressed so that the jail can be a better place and that anything that's going that's inappropriate can be addressed. So this is what Carlos was supposed to be doing. But instead, he became so engrossed in his character that he truly became part of the problem rather than part of the solution. He was very aggressive, and you can see his level of aggression increase as each week went on. And he became more aggressive, and not only with the inmates in there, but he even went against the previous pod boss. So the pod is the name of the building or that section of the jail of where a group of inmates may be. So it's like a ward in a hospital. So if you're on the cardiac ward, then that would be considered that pod. So basically Carlos had become the pod boss by going against the previous pod boss and also asserting himself by telling everyone in one particular scene, if you have any problem with me, come at me. And of course, no one stepped to him. He was fine. He was able to get more credibility. But with him having become the pod boss, 
with him also being able to control the economy of that pod by having the resources of the food and the commissary, then it was very hard for him to let go. In addition, because he already had previous prison experience, then he automatically went into that mentality of being a prisoner. And he, with this newfound authority and power that he had, he started off trying to do a good thing by not only give the report back to the sheriff, but he was trying to use his power in some of the scenes to actually help those who were disadvantaged. But because it was so much stress and because he was not able to sleep half of the time, because he was so busy staying up to either prevent fights, to maintain order and control, to avoid a shakedown from the guards coming in and then taking any type of um, property or any type of memento or extra commissary that anyone had, he was always on guard. And this got to his psyche and also his physical health. And then he would also get up if he heard someone was fighting, he would go in and stop the fight. So he was always on guard. So if you and I were in the situation and we're not Carlos, we would still always be on guard like most other inmates are. Because in prison, you have to maintain your safety and you cannot fully go to sleep because you're looking out to make sure that you are safe, that no one is going to attack you or so that you can be alert to hear any type of controversy that may be going on that may then impact your resources or your safety. So again, Carlos is a great example of what humans do when they're forced into a survival situation that's also coupled with a lot of lack. So you see him becoming withdrawn and depressed, and because he was also very tired, then he had manipulated individuals to organize or obtain drugs for him because that was his original mission. Find out where the drugs are coming in and going out from inside the jail. So what Carlos did, becoming ingrained into his character, he actually began taking the pills himself to cope with the stress that he was experiencing, to cope with his depression and to cope with his fatigue. And it was his using of this medication that resulted in Sheriff Scandrit just pulling him completely out of the program. But it was very important to see, or very interesting to me to see, that although he was taken out of the program earlier, he had become so much a prisoner, he didn't know if it was day 45 or day 65. It's only a 60-day program. So he actually thought that he had completed the program, that he, quote, did his time and that he was being released. So they had to tell him during the initial debrief, no, you're engaging in commissary. You're becoming physically aggressive with people. You're taking the drugs. Like you are actually becoming a danger to yourself as well as others, including those in the program. And so we have to take you out early. But he didn't really even get it. Even when it came to the um, anniversary episode, you know how they bring you back and they do the look back at what happened during the season. Then even then he was like, well, no, I was doing my job. And so he still didn't see where he had become so disconnected from being a plant in there to help become a solution that he even took this home and he had become so in, in tune with that character. So this is an example. Yes, Carlos may be an extreme, but 60 days in shows us 
that whether you're a Carlos or whether you're another inmate, every inmate in there reverted to behaviors that they would not normally do outside, inside um, civil society, because inside jail, there is harsh conditions that they have to then focus on their mere survival and trying to have their safety needs met and their basic needs met. And it's very hard to do when you also don't have the physical ability because you don't have the nutrition and you don't have the sleep and you may not even have the connections inside the jail to have comrades or camaraderie and support to keep you safe. So that's from an inmate's perspective. Let's look at another experiment, which was the Stanford experiment. And it shows us how not only do the prisoners take on a different mentality and a different behavior, but also the prison guards. So the Stanford experiment was based off of Stanford University. And this is a classic psychological experiment showing us what imprisonment and prison life does to the guards as well as to the prisoners. So it was supposed to have been a two-week investigation into the psychology of prison life. And although it was supposed to last for 14 days, they had to end it after only six days. And why? It's because the behavior of these college students had become so extreme and so sadistic that they actually had to stop it because they were concerned about the actual physical and psychological welfare of these students. So let's back up to the beginning. So the Stanford prison experiment was conducted at Stanford University with an average group of healthy, intelligent, and middle-class males who were enrolled at Stanford University. It was, con- it was promoted as a part-time job to help the psychology department. So the boys were arbitrarily divided into two groups and it was only by the flip of a coin. So it was randomized as far as, as far as a coin can go anyway. So half of the people were assigned to be guards and the other half were assigned to be prisoners. There was no other determination and no other difference other than if you were heads, you were this, and if you were tails, you were that. So in all other variables, the male college students were the same what the scientific experiment part of it added to it was that he also created a physical structure within one of the college buildings to make it look like a prison and even to look like a room where you can have visitors for a prison. They removed doors off of bathrooms to more closely resemble the bathroom stalls inside of a prison. And they added other Um, attributes. So the guards were given no specific training on how to be guards. Their only direction was do whatever is necessary to maintain law and order in the prison and to make sure that you command the respect of the prisoners. That's all they were told. And the guards did this. And because they did it and they became so like Carlos attached to their character and their role, They became extreme in this. What the guards did was they sought to maintain authority and control by becoming increasingly hostile and increasingly cruel. It first started off with, okay, all the prisoners have to do push-ups if they didn't listen to what they were saying. This is only day one. 
And then it proceeded to throughout the day, more harsh push-up demands and even some of the guards standing on or putting their feet on the prisoners while forcing them to do the push-ups. So because this was obviously unacceptable and college students are not used to this, the college students who were the prisoners on the morning of day two decided to have a revolt. They rebelled and they tried to say they put their beds up against the what was made into like the makeshift prisons and they refused to come out or follow any of their orders from the guards. So the guards, keeping with their role and their assignment of maintaining authority and commanding respect, what they did was they went and they got the fire extinguishers and they were spraying them in their eyes, in their face, stripping them down naked, gaining control of the prisoners as they were told to do. They even broke into the cells, took out their beds, and they forced the leaders of the rebellion to go into solitary confinement and they even withheld food from them. So with all of this happening, it showed them that we have to maintain control by using force. And we can do this through a deprivation as well as humiliation of the prisoners. And so they also created a privileged cell to further have a strategy of control. Specifically, what they did was they had one unique cell called the privilege cell, and they chose the three prisoners who were the least involved in the rebellion as the ones who were able to get these privileges. And they gave them back their uniform so they were no longer naked. They were also given back their beds. They were allowed to wash and brush their teeth and they were also given special food to eat in front of the rest of the prisoners. So obviously, if you see that this is what we get to have, if we have a special privilege by following orders, then we're going to engage in these survival behaviors, to not only be able to survive possible punishment from the guards, but also to be able to have more comfortable bed, being able to take a bath, brush our teeth, and also have more food that's more appealing or of more nutritional value. So in every aspect of this program, the prisoner's behavior was under the full control of the guards and they even controlled when the prisoners could and could not go to the bathroom. So this is again, only day two. So less than 36 hours, which is day three, into the experiment, one of the prisoners, because the conditions had become so harsh and brutal, that one of the prisoners began to experience an acute emotional disturbance. He had disorganized thinking, uncontrollable crying, and rage. And because the guards did not believe that his reaction was actually real, they became even more harsh in their punishment of him, which caused him to further decompensate into psychological depression and disorganized thinking and erratic behavior. Now, this is another fascinating story, so I'm not going to reveal all of the details of the study, but I have included a link in the YouTube description, so you can click on that link and see part of the experiment, but they also made a movie about it on Netflix, so you can watch it there too. But in short, the guards became so sadistic from making prisoners clean toilets with their bare hands to even more intense forms of humiliation and suffering that by day six, they had to shut the program down. 
So when we compare the prisoners or the cast of prisoners in season seven of 60 days in, and then we examine those behaviors with the behaviors of the guards in the Stanford experiment, we see that in both instances, when in a highly aggressive situation and when survival is key, that whether you are a person with power or you are a person who is powerless, then you are most likely going to revert to aggression, dysfunctional thought and behavior patterns, and you will focus on trying to obtain power or trying to maintain power. Now let's also look at a literary example of this. And this is The Lord of the Flies. This is an iconic novel written by Nobel Prize winner William Golding. So I completely loved this book when I was younger. And I just thought about how it just was so symbolic of human nature, the depravity of society. I might've been in the fourth or fifth grade, but I was there with it. So I was so impressed with this movie, with this book that I was a huge fan. It's one of my favorite books. But for this example, it shows us that even when you have a literary novel, what it did was it took the author's very real experience of seeing his father who was involved in politics and in war and with the author also having a science background, what we see is the combination of social issues such as war, lack of resources, and adding in the scientific and literary component to make it a very compelling story that's Nobel Prize winning of the depravity of humanity and how we can become so vile and vicious when we are experiencing harsh situations. So if you're not familiar with the story, what happens is that a plane crashes on an unchartered island and it leaves a group of schoolboys stranded. These are young boys, prepubescent. And at first with no adult supervision, obviously they're living their best life and they think that their freedom is to be celebrated and they're happy that they can do anything at any time and go to bed whenever they want. But after they see that, okay, well, wait a minute, no one's coming to help us, no one's coming to rescue us, then it's getting really real. What are we going to do? After a while, you start to see the boys establish a society with rules and with hierarchy and also a regulation of resources. So again, I'm also not going to give away all the details for that because I definitely encourage you to read it or at least listen to it on Audible. But it's an excellent, excellent example of humanity. It shows the dark side of humanity. It shows the savagery that underlies even the most civilized human beings among us when we're forced with having to survive, but not having the ability or the power to control our destiny for survival. So again, what it shows us, whether it's Lord of the Flies, the Stanford experiment, or 60 Days In, it reveals that in human behavior, we have a natural instinct to survive. And when our survival instinct is kicked in, we also are going to become less kind, less sharing, and we're going to focus more on our own security our own safety and our own needs. And again, being willing to do that by any means necessary. We can see that the human response is that when we do not have order 
when we don't have fair and equal access to our basic needs, we don't have opportunities to thrive, or when we don't have meaningful social connections, it reveals our natural inclination to be violent in order to survive. So whether it's trauma, whether it's not having food, whether you're in 60 days in, you are going to have a natural instinct to survive and you may kill someone, you may eat something, you may say or do something that you wouldn't think that you would do when you don't have to worry about surviving. So without civil society, when everything is going at least okay, we have civil behaviors and we are more likely to be altruistic and to think about higher level needs such as self-esteem, actualization, and thriving. But when all of that is taken from you, or when you are forbidden or prohibited from having even your basic needs being met, then you are going to go into a survival mode. So you will now change and you may have a change in your personality and you will have a change in what your preferences are. You will also have a change in what your tolerance level is. So now that we have more of a revelation of who we are and who we could become in situations of extreme or harsh conditions or environmental survival stressors, we can then have compassion for others who may be coming from or currently forced to live in those situations. And we could make our voting, our legislation, or just a general act of kindness, making it from a deliberate and a more knowledgeable standpoint. So that ends our conversation today. But as always, please continue this conversation and remember to do so using science and love. And if you run-